if you have a uh, Bible or a device with a Bible on it, go ahead and meet me in Romans chapter 5. That's where we're going to be today. And uh, before uh, we get going, I just want to take just a, a quick minute to just express just how encouraged uh, I am right now just with what I might call just kind of like the, the spirit of our church. I don't know if any of you can feel it over the last like five or six weeks, but I definitely can. And... Uh, it just kind of feels as if God is like uh, maybe uh, stirring some things up. And I'm just so encouraged by your spirit and your encouragement, your generosity. And uh, I don't know that I could have said that like a year, year and a half ago. Like to be quite honest, there were some really dark nights of the soul. And I was just kind of wondering like, God, what are you doing and where are we going? And uh, I almost feel as if he is uh, using the events of the last year and a half to really refocus us to prune us, to um, sharpen us. It's, it's almost as if he is helping us to see that perhaps in maybe various areas of our life and even in, within our church that we were building on sand and we need to build on rock. And as he just kind of strips some things away and refocuses us. And uh, so I'm really encouraged and optimistic about the days ahead. And uh, one of the common, I think, misperceptions that a lot of people can have about us or big churches in general, and I totally understand where this can come from, is just to kind of assume from the outside looking in that we're just about big crowds, that we just want to get lots of people to watch and lots of people to attend. And I'll be very, very honest and say that perhaps maybe there was a time uh, as a younger leader when maybe I got too enamored with that. And I just want you to know I'm enamored no more, that I'm not interested in big churches, big crowds or anything like that. Now, with that said, I will say unapologetically, I want to reach as many people as possible with the gospel of Jesus Christ, because um, everyone needs hope. And people are dying, facing a Christless eternity. And so we'll go hard and we'll go aggressive to reach people for Christ. They don't have to stay in our church. I just want to reach them for the kingdom. Um, and, and yet, um, at, at the same time, we want to recognize that um, we don't just want to build crowds. I want to help form you into the image and likeness of Jesus, which is as, uh, as a team, our, we're getting really focused on that. Just how do we equip you to be And the primary word there is formation. It's the recognition that right now, whether you believe in God or you don't, whether you realize it or not, you're being formed into something and someone. And spiritual formation is I'm going to be formed into the image and likeness of Jesus. And we just more and more want to reach people and then help with you in that formation. And uh, so I just want to thank you all. Um, man, I, it is the joy and the honor of my life to serve as one of your pastors. I don't ever want to go anywhere. I hope you don't kick me out. Like I want to be able just to kind of serve the rest of my days here. And I'm really excited about what God is doing. And if you're just now joining us, I want to welcome you at all of our locations. Those of you joining us online, we are in uh, week five of an 11 part series of messages as we're walking our way through the New Testament book of Romans. And we're calling this recalibrate. And the reason why is because we've said that all of us have these like internal compasses, so to speak. And these internal compasses help us make sense of this crazy world that we live in. And it gets the lens by which we see social and political issues. It's the lens by which we see the economy and relationships and even human sexuality. Now, here's the thing is that our compasses are being calibrated all the time by someone, the people you hang with or something, the content you consume. 
Whether you realize it or not, we're all being calibrated by something. The question is, is are we being calibrated by the right things or the right voice? And we are bombarded with all kinds of information 24-7. Information is not bad. I'm really glad and thankful for technology. But we were not, as human beings, built to process this much information. And we're sort of overheating, so to speak. I um, came across this stat a few weeks ago. Somebody on our staff team actually shared this with me, that from the beginning of time to 2003, we collected five exabytes of data. Now, uh, all the Encyclopedia Britannica, all the knowledge, all the written books, uh, all the internet from the beginning of time to 2003, five exabytes of data. Now, I didn't know what an exabyte was, so I had to Google it. And I found that one exabyte equals one billion gigabytes. Doesn't help me, all right? That just sounds, sounds like a lot, all right? So, so from the beginning of time to 2003, five exabytes of data, here's what we found is that now we create that amount of data every two days. And that stat was from 2010. So it's probably even more so today. You add all of this bombarding of information that we just can't possibly process. You add this to the fact that we've just gone through a once in a generation global pandemic, one of the most divisive political elections in history, some of the most intense racial tensions since the 1960s and continual upheaval and debate around social issues. We've had quite a year and a half and we've all been knocked off course to some degree trying to make sense of this crazy world that we live in. And it's left us angry, confused, defensive, anxious, and depressed. And if the needles of our internal compass were visible, they would likely be spinning. Now we've said that the real enemy behind all of this craziness is not the Democrats or the Republicans, it's not Russia, China, ISIS, or even Tom Brady, right? Might be Tom Brady. It is the enemy that has been subtly working behind the scenes in this world since Genesis chapter 3, creating all kinds of deception and misinformation in our heads and around the world, urging us, as Romans 1 says, to exchange the truth of God for a lie urging us to worship. And one of, I think one of the most helpful definitions of worship, it's not singing. Worship is taking the affection that is already in your heart and aiming it. And he says, I want you to aim your affection towards created things rather than creator God. And our enemy has a name. His name is Satan. He is not a myth or a pre-modern superstition, but a real intelligent force of evil who is hell bent on the ruin of souls and societies. And his primary strategy is deception. More specifically, deceptive ideas that he plants in our heads and it appeals to our disordered desires, which we are then tempted to normalize into our lives. And he whispers in our heads, hearts, and conscience a variation of this question. Did God really say? How do you know? Like, I know it meant it then, but it means something different today. And you don't need to be confined by that sort of oppressive, repressive system of belief. Distance yourself from God. Do your own thing. You do you. Follow the voice in your head and the inclination of your heart. Besides, Christians are a bunch of hypocrites anyway. And he isolated Adam from Eve and Eve from Adam. Because in isolation, we're always weaker. And then he fed them a counterfeit ideology, which is a lie. And that's the way he continues to work. 
One of the primary things that he'll get you to do is he'll get you isolated. He will, this is why relationships of all kinds, whether it's a marriage or a friendship or a parent child, it's just messy. It's hard because we have an enemy working against it. And he wants to isolate you from this other person. If he can't do so physically, he'll do so emotionally. And it gets you isolated. And then he'll start feeding you ideas. This is COVID. We were fish in a barrel through all the social distancing that took place. And then all the ideas that were coming through our screens and phones. He fed us these ideas that got into our heads, slowly seeped into our hearts, and then came out through our fingertips and thumbs via comments on social media. And it just derailed all of us. And so we're going to the book of Romans to recalibrate our lives back to true north. Like that as humbly and confidently as we can, just go, whoa, 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 in the name of Jesus, enough. Like we're going to follow him. Like we're going to allow him to be true north in our lives. And so what we've done is as we're studying Romans, for a little context, we're laying the narrative from the Old Testament of Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they were exiles in Babylon. And we said, this is really sort of symbolic. I mean, it literally happened, but this is also symbolic for what is happening now. And so the city of Babylon, long gone, the spirit of Babylon lives on. And Daniel and his friends were exiles in Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar was trying to shape them into the image and likeness of Babylonian culture by immersing them in their ideologies. Same thing is happening today. As Christ followers, we live in what we might call digital Babylon. It used to be that uh, in order to feel maybe sort of an intense kind of pressure as a Christ follower that you needed to go to the campus of a university or maybe some sort of major urban city. Now all you need is an iPhone and Wi-Fi access. And it's right there in front of us. In fact, the Barna Group um, did this uh, study where they said that we spend, talking specifically about Christians now, we spend upwards of 2,800 hours a year consuming digital content on our screens. 2,800 hours a year. But only 153 of those hours is what we might call Bible-based or Christ-centered content. The rest is a digital cocktail of YouTube, Instagram, Netflix, Snapchat, and TikTok. And I'm not against any of those things. In fact, I think many of those things can be good. The question is, is what is calibrating your compass? And be honest. Like how much of the time are you allowing other content to process who you are being formed into? So Daniel and his three friends, they were told to bow to a 90-foot idol. Today, we are told to bow to ideologies. And an ideology is a secular attempt to find a metaphysical meaning to life, a way to usher in utopia without God. And I think that ever since the enlightenment and ever since the uh, sexual revolution ideology of 50 years ago, I think it's kind of promised us like fulfillment. I think here's, here's just my opinion. Here's what's happening right now in society is that all of society is realizing that it's not giving us the fulfillment that we thought and everybody's freaking out. And they're like, well, what is true? And I think this is why people are more open to truth that can be delivered in love than ever before. And we shouldn't be asleep at the wheel. See, one definition of ideology is when you take part of the truth and make it the whole. And this is the reason why American politics is so divisive because both the left and the right take part of the truth and make it 
the whole. And in so doing, we imprison our own mind and heart in lies that drive us to anger or anxiety. This is why here in a few weeks, when you get together with extended family for Thanksgiving and the subject of politics comes up, it's going to end in either anger or anxiety because it's so divisive because it takes part of the truth and makes it the whole. We are enmeshed in ideologies that are lies. And this is the reason why Jesus said this in John 8, 32. And you will know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. Jesus came to not only be the dispenser of truth, he came to actually be the truth, to reorient our lives and our internal compasses around truths, to be set free from the lies and the falsehoods and half-truths of the enemy. This is why, I don't know if you ever thought about this before, but when Jesus came and, and walked among us, and he, he lived here for 33 years, and three of those years was his like, full-time earthly ministry, he came primarily as a rabbi, a teacher, because Jesus came to deliver us from lies by giving us truth. He also came in the flesh. Like he didn't just like send down all this information, you know, uh, via some methodology. Jesus came and actually was the embodiment of God in the flesh. One time Jesus said, if you want to know what God is like, just look at me. That's what he said. So he came in the God in the flesh to give truth. Why? Because relationship, truth in relationship is trans formational. So all truth, no relationship, then I can't hear you. All relationship, no truth, that won't change me. And Jesus comes to deliver truth in relationship. And the book of Romans is a summary of what has gone wrong in our world and the gospel message that Jesus has come to deliver us uh, from the freedom uh, of these lies. So the clarification of the gospel message that the world so desperately needs to know, it so rarely ever sees it and, or sees it lived out because as we've seen from Romans 2 and 3, Christians are in just as much need of it as anyone else. At the root of hypocritical, judgmental, mean-spirited, overly political Christians is that we've allowed our compasses to be calibrated by the wrong things. That sums up chapters one through four. Now, as we come to chapter five, I don't know if you remember me saying this a few weeks ago, but I said that Satan's number one play, like the number one thing that he wants to get you to do is he wants to get you to reject God. And here's how he'll do it. He'll throw pain at you. He'll throw COVID and cancer. He'll throw trauma and abuse. He'll throw suffering trials and temptations at you and get you to pin the blame on God and walk away from him. And I think oftentimes, I think we would all agree that this world is really, really messed up. What we get confused with is why is it messed up? And Paul's going to give us a few answers here. What he's been doing in the first four chapters of Romans is laying down the foundation for what the gospel message is. Now in chapters five and following, he's going to start describing the difference this should make in our lives. In particular, the perspective that we have on pain and suffering. More specifically, where does it come from? And maybe more importantly, what does Jesus do to redeem it and ultimately deliver us from it? Tim Keller, somebody that I've been quoting a lot in this series, said, said it like this. He goes, how well we understand and believe the gospel message will be demonstrated by the attitude and perspective we have when we face suffering. 
So Paul starts off chapter 5, verse 1. Look at it with me. He says, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. I want you to notice this word right here because it's a transitional word. The first four chapters of Romans is a section. And now this is a big transition. He says, therefore, meaning everything that I've already covered in the first four chapters, therefore we can come to this conclusion right here. Um, What I want you to know, this might be something for you to jot down in your notes, that the book of Romans is built on four therefores. Kind of like when you build a house, like the most important uh, part of building a house is the foundation. More specifically, the footings of that foundation. It's what gives your house security. Romans is built on four therefores. They are the footings of the foundation of the book. So if you remember back in chapter three, we came across the first one. Paul finishes laying out his case against the law and he says, therefore, we conclude we cannot be justified by works. It's gonna take something else to save. There's another huge one we're going to get to in a couple of weeks. I can't wait to preach it. Chapter eight, verse one says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have total access. Um, there, uh, that's like the fall break clap. You're just kind of like, well, I'm kind of awake. All right. Uh, there's, there's another huge one in, in chapter 12, verse one. And then we have this one right here, chapter five, verse one. And Paul is basically saying like, hey, because we have been declared righteous by faith, Therefore, we look at pain and suffering differently. You get a good handle of the therefores, you'll have a pretty good handle of the content of the message of Romans. And he says these two words here. I just want maybe a helpful exercise sometime would just be read through the whole book of Romans. Circle every time you see the words made right. They are all over the book. We, we are made right. Not, not like on our way, like, you know, being made right, like fingers crossed, hope I've done enough to get in. No, it says we've been made right. Like it's been done. Like Jesus has done everything that is needed for our justification. Now, still being formed into the image and likeness of Jesus? Absolutely. Still got a lot of work to do in that area? You bet. But I do it from a place of confidence and security because my salvation has already been done in Jesus Christ. I'm not in and I'm not out. And the result of this is peace. Not a subjective feeling that like floods our hearts with serenity, but an objective reality that is based upon Jesus' finished work on a cross. And feelings are important. I would never tell you that they're not, but feelings don't tell you everything. Your feelings can lie to you. Your feelings can come and go. And I think a lot of people think that the primary purpose of faith is to give you therapeutic feelings of peace which then leads others to the conclusion, well, you know, Christianity works for you to give you therapeutic feelings of peace, but I've got got meditation or yoga or long walks or eating kale or drinking bourbon or rubbing essential oils on my lymph nodes. That's how I get peace. But we don't just have feelings of peace. We have actual peace. And verse two tells us why. Because of our faith, and that is not, faith is not wishful thinking. Faith is when you are leaning the weight of your life upon Jesus Christ. He says, Christ brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And notice these next two words, confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. It is a privilege that is undeserved, but because of Jesus, he brought us into it and there you stand. 
It's kind of like this. Let's say that um, the Indy 500 rolls around in May and somebody that has a suite at the Pagoda invites you in. And so you show up and you get the little lanyard and you go up in the elevator and you're, you're there in the, the suite. That is an undeserved privilege. Like you didn't buy the ticket. You didn't earn the ticket. You got in because you knew someone. Now, um, you are in, meaning that you can uh, actually enjoy all the benefits of the suite. Like, he's not going to say, like, hey, you know, just sit over in the corner, keep your head down, don't talk to anybody. No, it's like, here's a plate, go through the buffet line, like, enjoy your experience here. No, nobody, you, you can stand confidently and enjoy this, but you do th- so from a sense of humility, meaning that I'm only here because I know someone. Nobody's going to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, there's been a mistake, you need to go sit in the bleachers in turn four. Snake pit. The snake pit is your seat, right? Like nobody's going to do that. Like he's like, this is where you are. And he says in a very similar way, Christ has brought us in something way better than the pagoda. And he goes, hey man, you're in this undeserved privilege and there you stand. Head up, no shame. Like in fact, I need to do a series on all the stands in the Bible. Like it's amazing. And there we stand with joy. And I think this brings up a really, really important question that I think can meddle its way into our feelings and distort our view of God. Here's the question. How do you think God feels about you? And what I mean is like right now, today, how do you think God feels about you? And your answer to that question will either clarify or distort the gospel message. I'll go first. Here's how I often think God feels about me, even though I, I, I've been teaching the Bible for over 20 years and I think I've got a pretty good handle on the gospel. And yet there are still times, it happened even this last week, that I'll just, I just sort of have this feeling that yes, I know that God loves me. I'm just not sure he always likes me. Can I say that out loud? And here's why, because I just keep screwing up. Like, it's like, there's just times whenever I just kind of feel like God's looking down and he's just shaking his head going, when is Brockett going to get a clue? Like every time he should love his wife sacrificially, but he's selfish. Every time he should be patient with his kids, but he's not. Every time that he makes a stupid decision with money, every time he thinks an impure thought and dwells on it too long, Brockett, when are you going to get your act together? And I just sort of walk around like this. I feel like I'm walking on eggshells. Like I know, like I, like I know that I'm, I've got my position secure in Christ, but I don't always feel like it. I feel like I'm kind of in and out. And I've struggled with this since a little kid. I've shared with some of you before, I shared with our staff here recently, there was this time growing up when I was like so insecure about where I stood with God and I had a, my, my family had a key to our neighborhood pool. And so I, there was one summer where I would go down to our neighborhood pool, I was there all by myself and I literally baptized myself 16 times one summer. Like, I'm not even joking about that. Like, I would like, get into the water and I'd be like, I believe, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. So, like, God, did you see that? I'm like, dunking myself. Like, I don't know if it took, right? I'll do it again. And it's just like, bad. and I'm sure that there were neighbors that were going, what in the world has gotten into him? That's just like how insecure I've been about this. And I think oftentimes this just, just, just distorts our view and understanding. And here Paul is going to great lengths. He is pulling human language to its limits to say, no, listen, Our God is a tender father who couldn't love you more. I love how author Max Licato says that. He's like, God, God, God loves you so much, right? He's not going to love you any less. Like he just loves you for, for who you are. And I know that this idea of like God as father is hard for some of us because you had a really crummy example of an earthly father. 
Maybe your earthly father bailed on you or abused you or hurt you. And that has sort of distorted your view of your heavenly father. And I just want you to know, I totally get that. I empathize with that and I hear that. And I just simply want to say to you, let your heavenly father redeem it. See your earthly father through the lens of your heavenly one, not the other way around. And Paul goes on in verse three and he says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. For we know that they help us develop endurance. Now, rejoicing is different than happiness. And we oftentimes get these confused. See, happiness is contingent upon what you want to happen happening. It's in the word, but joy is different. It has nothing to do with happiness. And I think oftentimes we think, well, if I'm not happy as a Christian, then something must be wrong. God must not be real. I must not be doing it right. But remember that the Bible tells us that Jesus was familiar with sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he was perfect and he never sinned. And yet he went through the exact same things. And Paul says here, hey, listen, like we can rejoice when we run into problems and trials. Here's my observation. I don't run into problems and trials as much as they run into me. This last week, uh, we were on fall break as a family. We drove down to Branson, Missouri, which is where we usually go on fall break. And we pulled into a gas station to use the bathroom. And so our whole family gets out. We go inside and I was the first one out. And I'm, st I'm walking towards where our Suburban was parked, but I couldn't see it because there was this large RV that had pulled right behind us and blocked us into the parking stall. And it blocked us and the guy parked right next to us. And as I was walking up, the driver of the RV was out of his uh, vehicle and the guy parked next to us, they were like in this heated conversation because the guy obviously was upset that the RV had kind of blocked us in. And I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm with him. And I'm like, you know, how, how, are you, how are we going to get out of here? And I didn't understand why he pulled in and blocked us in. But by the time I got up there, they had sort of resolved that he gets into his RV to pull away. And as he's pulling away, I noticed like he's pretty close to our Suburban. And as he pulls away, he turns the corner and just, I hear this large crunching sound. I see our whole Suburban like lurch forward and he like totally destroyed our back bumper. And he just, he didn't know it. He just took off, takes off like through the parking lot. And I go running after him, <laughs> rejoicing, right? I say, no, that's like... These problems and trials are helping build endurance. Like it's like, no, it's like, no, I'm flagging them down going, bro, like you hit our suburban, right? It's like, it's like, but Paul says that these problems and trials, we ne that's never our reaction when it first happens. But he's given us this perspective. And, and Paul is not a masochist. He's not rejoicing in pain for pain's sake, but rather because no matter how intense he says it is producing something in you of greater value, listen to me, than a pain-free life. None of us like pain, but pain is the only way to build endurance in this crazy world that we live. And he further unpacks it in verses four and five. He goes, and endurance develops what? Strength of character. How many of you want that? Man, I do. Man, strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. This is the first mention of the Holy Spirit in Romans. And I only point that out because Paul chooses to point it out when he's talking about pain and suffering. The Holy Spirit is the installment of God's love in our hearts. Some of you know the original name for Holy Spirit 
in the original languages is paraclete. It means helper. And his main role is to remind you in the midst of pain and suffering of God's presence with you. That Jesus doesn't just give us security from the trials of life. He promises us security through the trials of life. And he says, one day I will deliver you from them. But right now I'm with you. See, trials produce endurance and endurance is the ability to keep going even when. And how would you finish that sentence? What are you walking through right now? Endurance is the ability to keep going. Even when the clouds of depression reemerge, even when the cancer doesn't go away, even when the marriage isn't reconciled after you've gone through all of the counseling, even when the person who hurt you doesn't seem to care. He says, no, I'm still with you. I'm still with you. you know, there, there was a time when I was in college where I prayed a really, really dangerous prayer that I don't have, I don't know that I have the courage that I've been able to muster the courage to pray it since then. But here's the prayer that I prayed. I prayed, God, it was one morning. I was on my way to class. I was like, God, would you teach me humility? Such a stupid prayer. I was like, why would I pray that? I don't know what I was thinking, right? It was just like, I think I was like, in my morning devotions, I read something on humility and pride. I was like, oh man, I really want, God, would you teach me humility? And man, he did. Like in the following weeks, like I flunked a couple tests and my car broke down. I caught a cold that turned into an infection and my girlfriend broke up with me under the excuse of, well, I'm just not really ready for a serious relationship. And this is what she said. And I quote, I just want to date Jesus for a while. She literally used that on me. And then like two weeks later, she's dating somebody who lives on my dorm floor. I didn't even know Jesus lived in my dorm. <laughs> it's like, I'm still not over it, right? Like that hurt. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7 speaks to this. And it says, hey, listen, here's what character is. You, you meet somebody with character, I guarantee you they've gone through pain and suffering and trials. You can't develop character without it. Character means that you go through the furnace of some sort of affliction and the impurities are burned away. And in suffering, I don't know fully what God is doing. I'm not going to stand up here and pretend that I do, but, but maybe God is trying to prune out a bad habit or he's trying to free you from dependence upon an idol or he's maybe just trying to help you see that Christ and Christ alone is sufficient. And how can we really know what he's doing? Well, Paul addresses it in verses six through eight. Check it out. He goes, when we were utterly helpless, well, we're talking like infant status, like can't even feed ourselves, like utterly helpless. Christ came at just the right time and he died for us sinners, which would be everybody. We're all in the same boat. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. Now, this next sentence is what brought me to Christ. And I've told this story before, sitting on a park bench, 17 years old. God demonstrated or God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And I read that sentence as a 17-year-old boy, and it was as if the Holy Spirit just leveled me. Because here's what Paul just said. On rare occasions, a heroic person might sacrifice himself or herself for somebody that they really love. Like a soldier who jumps on a grenade to save the platoon or a mother who sacrifices her life for her kids. 
I know without a doubt right now that I would lay down my life for my wife and kids. I wouldn't even have to think about it. It's not even a question. Would I lay my, down my life for you? Probably not, right? It's like, it's like, <laughs> I love you. I don't really know if I like you, all right? It's like, it's like some of you are mean, all right? So, so, so Paul... Paul is saying that the equivalent here is not uh, you laying your life down for somebody that you really, really love. He's saying the equivalent of what Jesus did for you would be like you laying your life down for a terrorist or a sex trafficker. Enemy number one. That's the idea. And I'm not even overstating it. And he goes, well, who would do that? And the answer, God did. He did it to reconcile us back to himself because there was no other way. That's when the lights turned on for me. That's when I realized like, this is serious. Like this is a big deal. And I stepped out of darkness into light. Maybe some of you will as well. That's how much he loves you. So when you go through problems and trials, and this is why Paul kind of inserts this in here. Um, we don't know, really know all the reasons why we go through it, but uh, here's what it can't mean. It can't mean God doesn't care. It can't mean that he's punishing you for something because Jesus already took that punishment on the cross. It can't mean that he is absent because he is fully present. And Paul goes on in verse nine. And since we have been, here's those words again, made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save. Not maybe save, not odds are good. No, he will certainly Save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored, meaning we originally started off as friends with God and it got damaged due to sin. But now it's gonna be restored, how? By the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, meaning we were still in rebellion, didn't want it. We will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now he circles back to this word. We can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. And if his blood has secured my forgiveness, then his resurrection guarantees that God will redeem our pain and suffering and ultimately redeem the pain and suffering in our lives. Bank on it. Here's one of my favorite definitions of faith. Faith is when the unexplainable meets the undeniable. The unexplainable, pain, suffering, trials, struggle. The undeniable, Jesus walked out of a grave. Faith explains, faith means when the unexplainable meets the undeniable. It's accepting what you cannot understand, pain and suffering, with what you can understand. Jesus walked out of a grave. See, jettisoning a belief in God, that doesn't solve the problem of suffering. It just creates a larger one. Now, I don't really know why God allows all the pain and suffering that he does in this world. But I know what it can't mean. It cannot mean that he has forgotten you. It cannot mean that he doesn't care. It cannot mean that he's punishing you. It cannot mean he's no longer involved. He will come to complete what he started. So now that Paul has told us how God can use the pain and trials in our lives to develop endurance and strength of character, now he's going to explain why we have pain and trials in the first place. And here's the short answer. We are under a curse. Kind of sounds like Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? We are under the curse of sin that got ushered in by our great, great, great grandparents, Adam and Eve. 
Now that's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus is going to reverse the curse. See, Paul's been talking about something that, or he's gonna talk about something here that maybe you've heard of, but never you really fully understood. It's the doctrine of what we might call original sin. And when I was growing up in church, I never really fully understood this. I was like, I would hear like original sin. And I was like, is that a sin that nobody else has ever done before? I'm the first one to make it up. Like, am I really that bad? That's not what original sin is. Original sin is actually what came out of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. And so Paul's gonna explain it to us. Check it out, verses 12 through 14. He said, when Adam sinned, here's what happened. Sin entered the world. In other words, God did not intend for all this to be as it is. So that actually is at least a partial explanation of why we go through pain and suffering is that sin brought it in. It wasn't God's idea, we brought it in. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. The Old Testament law hadn't been given to us yet. But still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol. There it is. This is we're beginning to understand this doctrine. A symbol, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. What that means is that what Adam was intended to do, he was intended to face down the deceiver and, de and defeat him, not give in. Jesus ultimately did. And I'll get there to that in just a minute. So last week, if you were here, you tuned in, Pastor Ryan walked us through chapter four, which was basically, this, Paul uses the story of Abraham to show how Abraham's life illustrates justification by faith. Here in chapter five, he's gonna go back even further to Adam to show how Adam's story sets up how we got into this mess and now the grace that we are under through Jesus Christ. Something that might be important for you to understand is that the, the name Adam, as well as Eve, they're not even proper Hebrew names. Adam's name literally means human and Eve's name literally means life, human life. You, maybe you've noticed that nobody else in the Old Testament is named Adam or Eve. This is the origins, this is the beginning of human life. In other words, how we got into this mess that we are now in. And to help us understand the first Adam and the second Adam, uh, I've heard it explained this way, that um, uh, the movie Star Wars has been called the tale of two Skywalkers. And the first Skywalker, um, Anakin, who um, uh, eventually became Darth Vader, he gave into the lure of the dark side and he embraced it, bringing death and destruction and chaos into the galaxy. But the second Skywalker, Luke, faced the same exact temptations, but he resisted. He was faithful to do the Jedi way. And in so doing, he was able to reverse the curse that came from the rebellion of the first Skywalker and even redeemed him. And George Lucas, who came up with the whole story, said that the th central theme of episodes four through six was the redemption of Anakin by Luke. And I just lost all the Star Trek fans, right? But maybe that's helpful for some of you, right? And similarly, the entire storyline of the Bible is about the redemption of the first Adam who gave in to the lure and the temptation of the darkness of this world by the second Jesus Christ. That's what's happening in verses 12 through 21. See, Adam chose to defy God's authority and reject what God commanded. And because of that, we live in a world of death, destruction, and chaos. And here's what original sin means. Even though we weren't there, 
God regards Adam's choice to be ours. That's the doctrine of original sin. What it means practically is that every divorce, disease, and disaster, every painful battle with cancer, every stillborn child, birth defect, rape, war, and abuse goes back to this choice in the garden that God finds you and me culpable for. And if you are anything like me, you say, how in the world is that fair? How can I be held responsible for something that I had no part in? I wasn't even there. I remember when I was studying this um, in college and I found that C.S. Lewis, the great writer and thinker, he struggled with that question too. So that made me feel a little bit better. And I remember like uh, going back to my dorm with like the, uh, my group of students that we were, we were just kind of learning this. We were all kind of in a circle and I'll never forget this. Like what we, as we were studying this, we were like, man, when we get to heaven, we are hunting Adam down and we are going to kick his rear end all over the streets of gold. Like we're just going to put kick me signs on the back. Like, we're going to just totally mess with that guy for the rest of eternity. We're like, how in the world is that fair? Like Adam, you messed it up for the rest of us. But in calling Adam our representative, here's what God is saying. God is saying that he knew what Adam chose is what each one of us would have chosen had we been in his sandals. And I might say that I wouldn't, but deep down, I know I would. I can't even keep donuts in my house without being tempted to overeat, right? And so, so God knows our hearts really, really well. And we might say, well, I didn't make the choice. It's hardly fair to be held accountable for something I didn't choose. That's true. But you and I have ratified Adam and Eve's decision at some point in our lives over and over again. We've adopted their thinking. When we say, I know better, I would rather, I can always stop. St. Augustine actually wrote about this 1500 years ago. He said, when he was walking home one afternoon with his friends, they saw a pear tree on somebody else's property. And here's what he said. He goes, the pears didn't even look any good and we weren't hungry, but we stole them anyway. And he said, we just fed them to the hogs. And he goes, I've always been haunted by that afternoon. Why did I steal the pears when they didn't look good and I wasn't even hungry? And he goes, here's why we stole them. We delighted in doing what was wrong. And honestly, deep down inside, we do too. There's a reason why it's temptation. It's because it feels good. We wanna do it. We rebel against God because we harbor kind of a quiet resentment of his authority in our lives. But now that that's the really bad news, here's what Paul gives us the really, really good news. Verse 15, but there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. Aren't you thankful for that? Like he's basically saying, man, you are culpable for Adam's sin, but you are also the recipient of God's grace that he gives now to many. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being, here's those words again, made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Man, that is so amazing. And then he goes, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness, he went to a cross brings a right relationship with God and new life for who? Everyone. 
Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Being represented by Adam is a real bummer. That's really, really bad news. But it also sets us up to be represented by Jesus, the second Adam, which is really, really great news. And Jesus came to reverse the curse that Adam put us under. So that means while we go through pain and suffering, we hold on. You, you hold on through that. You don't give up. You don't wave the white flag. You don't walk away from God. You're like, no, no, no. Like I understand what Jesus has said that he's going to do with the pain and suffering that I'm experiencing. He can redeem it in the moment and he's going to redeem it for, he's going to make everything that has gone wrong right in the new heaven and the new earth. And Adam and Jesus are alike in that their actions have implications for all of us, but their motivation was different. See the first Adam selfishly obeyed God and ate from the tree. Jesus, he laid down his life and was nailed to a cursed tree so that we might live. The first brought death to everyone. The second brings life to everyone. And Jesus came to undo what Adam did. Have you ever wondered why when Jesus was beginning his earthly ministry, it says in the gospels that the spirit led him out to the desert to be tempted by the devil. And I've always been so confused by that. I'm like, why? It almost looks like he's being set up to fail before he can ever get started. And the reason why is because Jesus was gonna go toe to toe with the deceiver to do what Adam was intended to do, but couldn't do. Hold up under the deception and the temptation of an enemy. So rather than being in a garden, Jesus is in a desert. That's symbolic of our exile from a garden due to our sin. Rather than being tempted to eat from the tree of knowledge, Jesus is tempted to turn a stone into bread. Satan starts in on Jesus with the same deceptive question, just framed a different way that he gave to Eve. Eve was like, hey, did God really say? With Jesus, he said, hey, if you're the son of God, if, right before this, God had just told Jesus, you are my son whom I love. His temptation of Adam and Eve played to the desires of their hearts to be like God. His temptation of Jesus played to the desires of his heart as well, to obtain the kingdom of God through an easier way, the right thing in the wrong way, which is a pretty accurate description of sin. And Jesus stood up under it every time. How? His compass was calibrated to the word of God. With every temptation, he said, it is written calmly and clearly. And he was able to resist. And I'm so thankful that he did. You know, the first person to encounter Jesus in the garden after his resurrection was Mary. Mary thought he was the gardener. And I think that that's symbolic because that's the, a garden was the last place that God had friendship with us before we walked out on him. And I think it's as if Jesus is saying, Mary, I came back for you in the very same place that you left me. And Jesus is restoring all that Adam messed up in this world. We are condemned through the actions of a representative who did what any of us would have done if we were in his situation. Now we are saved through a representative who has done what none of us could do for ourselves. And that is the power of the gospel message. The question isn't, do you know it? The question is, have you received it? 
because it does have the power to save. So I'll close with this. This last week, as we're on fall break, we're eating at a restaurant and our waiter has a interesting accent. My wife asked him, where is he from? And he said, well, I'm from Turkey. And he said, I just moved to the States two months before COVID hit. And so we were fascinated by his story. We said, why did you move from Turkey to Branson, Missouri? And he's like, that's a good question. And he was like, well, long story short, he's like, I, I was uh, escaping religious oppression. He's like, I, I grew up Muslim. My whole family's Muslim. And he's like, I, I was escaping all of that. And I was like, man, that's fascinating. Like, tell, tell, tell us more of your story. And so he said, well, he's like, I read the Quran and then I, I read the Bible and and he said, um, and I, I wanted to get away from this oppressive religion. I thought, I took that to mean that he was like an atheist now. Then he surprised me when he said, no, he's like, I became a Christian. I was like, no, wait a second. Like you escaped religious oppression. You escaped one religion and then jumped into another one. And I was like, I was like, and he, but he didn't see it as oppression. He saw it as freedom. And I said, what caused you to become a Christian? Here's what he said, the gospel, the gospel. He's like, I read the Bible and then I gave my life to Christ. Like no church upbringing, like didn't go to like, didn't, didn't have this whole setting. It was the power of the gospel that prompted him to step out of darkness and into light. Here's the question that I have for you. As you've heard it and as you've seen it, are you gonna receive it or are you gonna reject it? And every time you reject it, your heart gets harder and harder. You're unable to hear it. So right now, here's the two invitations on the table. Who do you want representing you? You want Adam to represent you or do you want Jesus to represent you? But you got to RSVP. And so I want to give you the opportunity to do that like right now today. And so let me just pray over you right now, wherever you are, if you're at one of our physical locations, if you're online, let me just, let me just pray. And let's just allow the spirit of God to just be fully present with him right now. Father God, we come to you right now weary and hurting and broken. I know that there are real tangible problems right now that we are facing, that we're struggling with, battles that keep defeating us. And God, I ask that today you would allow your spirit to help us be able to see what's really going on in this world. And to rather than blame you for the pain and suffering that we're experiencing, that we would run to you, knowing that you give us security through the storms, that you've got a long range view, that you're trying to build endurance into us that leads to strength of character. That you've given us this hope that we can be confident in, that we are living right now in a cursed world, but Jesus has come to reverse the curse and we wanna be on team Jesus. We want you to represent us. And so Father, today we acknowledge that. We wanna to respond to that gospel message. We want our compasses to be calibrated to your voice. And so right now we just pray that you'd meet us like right where we are. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.